Welcome back to the Megawatt Hour, the latest podcast series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. In this series, we'll be examining how energy storage technologies are reshaping, reinforcing and recharging energy markets in the UK and further afield. Our first episode saw us take a sweeping look at the what's, why's and how's of energy storage. This week, we'll be taking a deep dive into perhaps the most exciting and active area of the sector today, battery storage. In less than a decade, the UK has moved from having no large-scale battery capacity to more than 1.6 gigawatts in operation, and that shows little signs of stopping as we accelerate pace towards net zero. We'll be looking at what's driving that growth, the hurdles faced by the sector, and importantly, what opportunities may yet lie ahead. I'm Andrew Dykes, an editor at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. And I'm once again joined by my co-host, David Bevan, a corporate finance partner at BDO, who heads up the group's renewable energy practice in the UK. We are also pleased to welcome back Ben Guest, who is Managing Director and Head of the New Energy Division at Alternative Asset Management Group, Gresham House. Gresham operates the UK's largest listed battery storage fund, which Ben oversees as well. So we're lucky to be able to pull on some of his incredible insight into this rapidly growing sector. So, uh, last time we covered the basics of storing energy in general, but I think it would be good for us to make sure we're all on the same page to kick us off. So, Ben, would you be able to kind of give us a back to basics 101 primer on, on how batteries work? Yes, and great to be back. Batteries, essentially, and I won't go into the chemistry and the analytics and so on. I'm not a practicing engineer. I'm not a technically a, a qualified battery expert, so I won't, I won't talk on those terms, although you might have your audience falling asleep. We won't hold it against you. I think in you. practical terms, what we're really talking about <laughs> is um, what, what a battery is doing. They are importing electrical energy at, at a certain rate, uh, what's often called in the sector power, the rate of energy flow. And the the key thing to think about when you're talking about batteries is is this, this a various set of parameters which relate to just reeling some of them off, your ability to charge them or discharge them at different rates relative to their storage capacity. That's often called a C rate, but some people call it the P rate, which is a power um, factor. The, the, the Chinese manufacturers tend to use that expression. Then you need to think about your cycle life. And cycle life can be expressed in many different ways, and typically at various, what's called a depth of discharge, another bit of jargon, so DOD or depth of discharge. So if you can discharge a battery 100%, how many times can you do it 100% before it dies or before it reaches what's called the end of life? Now, that's another technical term because it's actually a defined term. The end of life is usually a percentage of the beginning of life which is the capacity that it would have on the tin when you first buy the battery. How quickly does it take to get to that point? And then that cycle life will be very different if you used a 50% depth of discharge or a 10% depth of discharge. And understanding that's actually pretty important. Then another aspect is the round-trip efficiency. How much energy will you lose when you charge it and then release the energy? And how will that vary depending on how quickly you do it? So there's another um, important thing to understand. In that context, you need to understand the safety of the battery, which can be, again, defined by various third-party standards. In other words, what rating does it have in terms of safety and what safety standards does it comply with and at what level does it comply um, with them? So is it at a battery cell level? Is it at a module level, a sort of um, a combination of cells and um, which are wired up together? Or is it a system level? You know, um, is, is the safety considered there? And there, that's all about 
making sure that the battery performs within its safe parameters, which are typically defined by things like current, voltage, temperature, and, and are the controls in place at a cell module or system level. So various safety features in any case. Then you have, uh, and probably the, the, the last big important one is, is density. How much room will it take up and how heavy will it be? Um, weight doesn't matter too much for something doesn't doesn't move. It matters a lot more for cars, um, which use batteries, obviously. But volumetric energy density or just energy density um, is and sort of it's in watt hours, which is a measure of energy per liter, um, is important. And you're getting innovations on that both at a chemistry level and, of course, at an overall system level. Ben, one one question I had there, and, and, and you did a, a very good job, much better job than I did last episode of going through the various <laughs> characteristics of, uh, of of batteries and how you might look at them and characterize them. But when you apply that to the kind of the current situation, there are obviously I, I hear lots in the market about different types of battery chemistries sure. that are emerging, and they have. It seems to me that they have, they all have different, slightly different characteristics. They could be, for example, cheap. They may be very big in terms of scale, but they may be cheap or be based on plentiful resources, et cetera. So I think I understand that. What I'm less clear on is why lithium ion, which seems to be the the go-to chemistry in the utility scale battery storage market, why why has that emerged? Is it almost like a VHS Betamax accident? Or is it actually that if you line up all of those characteristics side by side, lithium ion really is the best solution for utility scale? Great question. So I would not categorize it as a VHS Betamax accident because VHS and Betamax were two products that were essentially the same. They were using the same technology, but with a different form factor, and one just became more popular than the other. I can't remember the exact reasons why, but they just did. Here, we are actually talking about different technologies to achieve the same thing, so different ways of going about it, um, and therefore, accident isn't going to dictate the success. It's actually which one is actually genuinely better. And the attractions of lithium are are multiple. Let's look at a couple of them. The reasons why lithium chemistry became more popular than the alternatives, in particular lead-acid batteries, NICAD, um, nickel-cadmium, that is, um, other chemistries that have been used in consumer electronics, which have been, until the car market and until the battery energy storage system market came around, were the greatest use of batteries Apart from lead acid for backup, the, the main benefits of, of lithium ion it were, was its energy density and its cycle life. I mean, basically, some of those characteristics that I mentioned. So, you know, on round trip efficiency, on energy density, on power, on manufacturability, which I haven't really touched on, you know, it, it really just beats the others. Now, that does mean that you get start coming down the cost curve. And then when it came to, you know, various alternatives being considered for cars, Really, lithium ion has just been the streets ahead. Now, bear in mind that lithium ion is not one chemistry. It's it's a family of chemistries. And specifically, there are two, arguably three, um, because of how Tesla started out, category of lithium ion chemistry that have emerged. And, and actually, within each of those, there are other formulations. So essentially, you can manufacture and optimize the characteristics of a battery to suit your purpose. So even lithium-ion batteries that are made for battery systems are quite different at a chemical level to the lithium-ion batteries made for cars, such that the energy density for a car battery is much greater than a battery energy storage system, 
but the cycle life for the energy storage system is much greater and the round trip efficiency is probably a little better as well. So you can still play around with the chemistry to optimize it by tweaking the chemicals um, that, that you use to optimize for managing power flow and heating or depth of discharge or just cycle life. And you can do that either by changing the material mix or the material amounts in absolute terms of having thicker cathodes or thicker anode or more electrolyte and other things as well. So it gets very, very technical very quickly. Um, it starts going over my head, but um, essentially you can do an awful lot. But fundamentally lithium iron does have attractive features of good energy density and um, good round trip efficiency. Those are fundamental points. The challenges that um, lithium-ion batteries have had, but haven't been a big issue for consumer electronics, have been cycle life and and, and, uh, and what is important in terms of consumer electronics and anyone's um, interest is, is safety as well. Yeah. So th the, these are things that lithium-ion batteries have tackled, I would argue. You know, it, yes, I mean, you could you could look on the internet and see lots of instances where lithium-ion batteries have ruptured and burst into flames and so on. But by and large, whether it's through packaging or control systems or other other means, the safety record of lithium-ion batteries, I think, is probably quite good considering how many of them there are out there. You know, that they are allowed onto planes. You know, you're allowed a phone, a laptop, uh, a Kindle, <laughs> everything else. And you're essentially taking something that would burn and not stop burning until it was burnt itself out and you couldn't put out and still it's allowed. So... Um, there have been concerns around those. Lithium-ion batteries weren't allowed on planes, for example, as auxiliary system for the longest time, and they used much heavier batteries just because they were considered safer. And that's actually already changed in the aviation industry. So it gives you an idea that lithium-ion batteries have got a good safety record and 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 uh, trust. And, and actually, that brings me back to the original question in terms of you know, how how these things work and how they might look. And if, if you haven't seen a battery storage site, I guess they are kind of thinking of a bit, a bit like a sort of small, very nicely ordered trailer park with lots of um, freight containers full of batteries. But what they also contain in, in, in those freight containers are energy management or battery management systems, which really are, are all about, the, the, to, to Ben's point, about um, ensuring that these things operate safely uh, and don't um, burst into flames. They, they are there are kind of cooling systems and, and um, various bits of technology in, in, in there as well as the batteries. Absolutely, um, that help make them safe. Absolutely. And to that point, there are various. I think one thing I haven't mentioned on the safety side is there are two categories in, in very simple terms. One is how do you prevent a fire starting in the first place from a safety perspective, and then if it does start. How do you minimize the loss? And this is a big thing in the insurance industry who actually wants to you know, make sure that they insure. So, you know, if something goes wrong and it will happen once in a while, what's the cause so that you learn from it? But then how do you stop propagation? So the limitation of propagation is, is, the, is the sort of buzzword um, or expression now to make sure that um, batteries are more insurable. Either you use a, a safer chemistry, and typically lithium-ion phosphate chemistry has been seen as a safer than uh, something called nickel manganese cobalt um, formulations. And the reason for that is all batteries, once they reach a, reach a certain temperature, then burst into flames and then they don't stop burning basically until they've burnt themselves out. And usually you can take away the heat, the fuel or the oxygen. Well, you doesn't need oxygen to burn. 
and therefore you can't smother it with something to stop it burning. I don't want to scare anyone here. It's the, fun, the reality is that the temperature that you need to get to, especially for lithium ion phosphate batteries, before that starts happening is a very high temperature. It's well over 100 degrees C, while the warranty parameters um, require you to, to stay within much lower temperatures. So that's, that's called thermal runaway, by the way, as a term. You know, you'll probably hear it more and more that once you reach a certain temperature, the temperature only keeps increasing and then it bursts into flames. But um, these are fundamentally very safe devices and, and lithium-ion chemistry is probably more popular from a safety perspective, but is substandard versus NMC, nickel manganese cobalt, uh, in terms of power, cycle life in particular. So... Ben, you, you mentioned there in, in aviation, mm. obviously we're, we are going to mainly talk lithium-ion and we're mainly going to talk kind of utility-scale projects yeah. today. Yeah. Are there certain edge cases where in these utility-scale applications you might not opt to go for a lithium-ion chemistry for one of these other characteristics? And is there anything that kind of warrants us covering before we kind of move on to the substance? So I didn't mention the, the three different types, um, but I mentioned the two that are most commonly used and that we have used, NMC and, and LFP batteries that there is um, broadly lithium cobalt batteries, which are sort of more the consumer electronics device, is, is what initially Tesla used. I think they've migrated towards more one of the other two. Um, and you only really see the two I've mentioned in the battery energy storage system. There is another battery type for completeness, two or three actually, that, that have been talked about. One that is quite expensive but has a great cycle life and a great power rating is lithium titanate. So if you only want to deal with power rather than significant storage, because significant storage requires a low-cost battery, you, you, you could use something like lithium titanate, which is um, typically a, a chemistry that's been dominated by the Japanese manufacturers historically. I believe Toshiba had been the biggest player in that area. Then in terms of uh, other battery chemistries, flow batteries have been talked about a lot. probably heard that as well. And vanadium redox flow batteries have been talked about probably the most. And they are all worth considering. The benefits of flow batteries is that they effectively have a, a, a very, very long-term cycle life. Their downsides and detractors are that they work at fairly low power ratings. So you need a very long duration battery to justify them. If you don't have a business case that justifies that, then the numbers stop working quite quickly, especially as you have to consider the fact that it's got an inferior round-trip efficiency to lithium-ion, to the best of my knowledge, I want to say. I don't want to get sued by anyone. Um, and they, they also require a little bit um, more in the way of operating costs um, because there are more mechanical devices involved. And they have a significantly inferior footprint as in energy density, so they occupy a lot more room. Um, so in places where space comes at a premium, UK being a good case in point, GB in particular, that's another reason to, to prefer something with a smaller form factor. So, so flow batteries are interesting. And then the only other battery I would mention, um, which has been talked about for a long time, which I'm hearing, hearing rumors about being explored as becoming mainstream, especially in the context of recent supply disruptions and or tightness in the lithium market, are sodium batteries, which can be seen as inferior versions of lithium batteries in terms of every aspect of them, energy density, um, power rating, um, ability to fully discharge, um, round-trip efficiency, et cetera. Safety, safety would be better, but, but you can think of them as a sort of a, a poor relation, but you know, the abundance of sodium versus lithium is far greater and therefore may appeal to at least 
a significant part or at least a subset of the battery energy storage system market. It won't work in the car market, but it could work in the storage market. So to pull on David's point earlier, you, you kind of mentioned what what these uh, utility-scale projects look like. Hmm. Ben, could you maybe walk us through kind of what, what Gresham's projects look like physically and in terms of on, on kind of paper and how you go about choosing you know where to place them and, and your business model, basically? Yeah, of course. In terms of what they look like, I- imagine... Uh, a fenced-off area to start with, usually quite high fences. They can be um, what are sometimes called hit-and-miss fences. I always love that expression. It's basically where you have planks of wood with a gap between them, and as though you've got another set of planks of wood that, that, where they fill in each other's gaps. Um, and so there's a, there's a, uh, they're quite good for insul- um, uh, sound insulation and uh, fairly cost-effective because you know you haven't got huge amounts of material. And typically, these these fences are three, four meters high. So a four meter high fence feels pretty high. It's comfortably more than twice your height. So it looks like you're really looking up and and it's a big fence. And then if you're on the other side of them, on the outside of the project, you just see nothing inside. You know, there's no chance of you sort of peering in. So a lot of our projects look like that and or have sometimes other types of fencing where it's not as necessary, but then have landscaping around them and they're still quite difficult to see in. Um, so that's sort of the perimeter, if you like. The perimeter might extend to, you know, enclosing in, in, in a site that's anywhere from a fraction of an acre for something that's sort of 10 to 20 megawatts. We've got very few projects that are of that sort of size. Well, most of our projects are significantly larger, 30 megawatts or larger. And, and by the way, 30 megawatts is, is basically the, the, the import and export capacity of the project. And then the duration of a project is a, is a function of how much you can store uh, and basically how long you can charge or discharge a battery for from full or empty, respectively, when you're operating the battery. And, and therefore, a, a one-hour project would, you know, at 20 megawatts would have a 20 megawatt-hour battery. So a one-hour project at 50 megawatts would be somewhere between one and two acres, typically. So you've got a, site, a sense of, of, of its size. And it would be, typically be as David implied, it's, it's not particularly exciting to look at. You know, it would have a, a path in it, which would be enough for a vehicle and or significant crane system to go onto it. It would be hard standing so that it can then move things around for maintenance. It would have been used during the construction and would have positioned the containers around the site. Typically, if you think of what the, the project requires, you need the necessary equipment to allow the electricity in. So it needs a point of connection to the grid. And you'd have your own switch, effectively, uh, which would stay closed uh, most of the time while the site's operating. But for safety reasons, it needs to be able to open, and that's exactly what it is. And there'd be various protection settings, um, mainly around the obvious you know, current voltage, that would make sure that it, you know, it, it was allowed to operate most of the time. But if, if something went wrong for whatever reason, an outage on the, on the grid or an issue within the site, that, that, that switch would open and, and, and render everything um, safe. And there'd be lots of other smaller, uh, lower rated switches around the site to isolate specific components. So the specific components that you would have, you know, first you're taking the alternating current, so wavy electricity that you have going into your home as well, but here it's coming in at uh, thousands of volts into the site, and that needs to be stepped down to a much lower voltage, the operating voltage of the site. And then you change that um, much higher current, lower voltage uh, electricity, because you know when you lower the voltage, you increase the current and actually start making the electricity more dangerous. It's the current that makes electricity dangerous, not the voltage. 
as long as you don't create a short from that high voltage to the ground, in which case it's it's also you you should effectively allow the current to flow. Hence the fences. Well, you want to keep people out. Absolutely. I mean, these are not you know sort of. Of course, if you go into the site and touch a container, you're not going to be electrocuted. <laughs> you know, that's that's um you know it's 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 not dangerous um to, to wander in and so on. But of course, health and safety is 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 paramount. And so the lower voltage, higher current electricity then gets needs to be turned into di- direct current. So you go from AC to DC, um, alternating current to direct current, which is the mode in which um, batteries operate. They charge and discharge um, in DC. So basically, single directional flow electricity, which is sort of what you'd imagine, really. Um, think of a tap. It doesn't go in and out. Um, it's just flowing in one direction. It's, it's quite useful to think of it in, in terms of water as well, by the way. So, you know, the grid connection could be a tap. You, you keep it on most of the time. Um, it, in this case, it can actually flow in both directions because it's a battery, a crucial difference versus a renewable project, which would be generating electricity and sending it only out. We have an export and import connection, and the battery is able to charge and discharge thanks to that. And, and, and so you have a transformer uh, to take the voltage down. You have an inverter to convert from AC to DC. They're often called power control systems or units, and they operate at what's typically called medium medium voltage, sort of 1,000 to 2,000 volts typically nowadays. Um, and then that's the same voltage that the batteries operate at as well, um, pretty much by definition. And, and the biggest share of the site is taken up by the batteries themselves. Um, but you do have switchgear, transformers, inverters, and batteries. Those are the key pieces of components. And then you have other auxiliary kits. So you know you need auxiliary power to keep things going if there's an outage. Uh, you need switches to render the site safe. And you obviously have the containerization and the heating and cooling systems. And of course, in terms of operating the site, you need all the electronics that go with that. So you have effectively a fiber optic network around the site communicating within with between devices as required but then also connecting back to a control room and and that control room will um, be receiving all the data about the site and sending it on to various different sources from national grid to ourselves to the traders and those it will be possible for the traders the O&M operations and maintenance contractors and National Grid, if 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 the assets are registered with National Grid and most of our, our hours are, that can become dispatchable by each of those. Dispatchable or turn you could turn them on and off um, with with any of those people, either to perform some a commercial activity uh, or to render them safe. So hopefully that that helps. There's an awful lot to go through in terms of um, what a, what a site looks like, and I'm I'm doing it in words rather than providing a picture. But hopefully there's a mental image building. Yeah, unfortunately it's it's more difficult to do without slides. I appreciate that, but I think that's a very good summation of these projects. Could you maybe tell us how many Gresham has on the books? And and you know you've mentioned the amount of equipment and work that goes into that. How how do you decide where they're going to go? And, and how much money and capacity and things to put behind them? So we've got 17 projects today that are fully operational. We've got another four projects today that are basically built and and, and in commissioning, at various stages of commissioning. Uh, we'll have about 25 by the end of the year that are fully operational. And then we expect that to grow by about another 10 from the end of this year to the middle of the following year, 2024. So quite a lot of projects, and as I mentioned, projects are getting uh, larger in terms of megawatts. So we're going from 425 megawatts to about 840 by the end of this year. And then by the middle of 2024, we expect to be at about 1,600 megawatts. 
Um, so effectively, the size of the market that you mentioned at the outset is going to be the size of our portfolio roughly in, in mid-2024. Now, one of those projects will be in Ireland, so it's not all GB. Um, so it's not quite like-for-like like comparison, but it's, it's, it's sort of highlighting a fairly significant portfolio. So, Andrew, you asked about how we choose the sites. We have some important decisions to make at the outset and then during the operation of, of a project. So you have to evaluate a project financially and its upfront costs and its ongoing revenues are the key variables that you can um, think about. The upfront costs are easy to define because they are what they are and they are a function of the cost of the land, whether you're renting it or buying it, the cost of the grid connection, which is a function of how easy it is to connect to, to, the, to the network and how far you are from that connection point. And you have the site itself in terms of how easy it is to work with. Is it a floodplain? Do you have to raise everything? Is it, we avoid those by the way, uh, is it wavy and hilly uh, or is it nice and flat? Do you have hard standing or is it muddy? You know, or is, it, is it easy to access or is it a really tight turning point for all the trucks going in? Those sorts of considerations are, are key to, to evaluating a site at the front end in terms of how much it'll cost you and how easy it, is, it will be to maintain. We broadly assume that all projects will achieve similar levels of revenue. They will have slightly different costs depending on where they are as a function of what voltage they operate at or where they might be. Um, but broadly speaking, they have a very similar revenue opportunity as modeled. The reality is that that might change over time. You know, as, as you get more renewables and you get greater distance between the average generation and the average consumption of electricity over time, you know, with a huge amount being generated offshore, a huge amount being generated in Scotland and Northern Scotland in particular through wind and the consumption not changing in terms of where it is, major city centers, you have a lot of considerations and, and it's likely that the, the market will be reformed to reflect the distance between a generation asset and the point of consumption. So that's an important consideration for generation, but it would also mean that batteries are valued highly where they actually de-bottleneck the network and, and allow especially cheaper renewable energy to flow rather than needing something to, to be turned off and alternatives to be sourced. So, so these, are, these are important considerations. The way we deal with that, to be honest, is think about where those constraints might um, exist today and become worse over time but also just simply by diversifying. So we, we have sites all over the country, and I think that's a sensible approach um, in terms of you not, not, not fully knowing exactly how the market might evolve. So Ben, you, you mentioned the kind of scale of assets that, that you've got on the books. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how you procure power to, to charge them up? Sure. In terms of how we go to market effectively, our, our route to market is, is via traders that are third-party entities. They've got various different names. They can be called wholesalers. They can be called power purchase agreement providers. They can be called asset optimizers. Most typically in the battery space, they're called asset optimizers because what they're trying to do is layer in different contractual activities to maximize and optimize the returns that they can generate. And the main contractors that we use are, are listed in our uh, annual report. Um, it, it's relatively public and we tend to announce uh, arrangements with them. So, so we, we, we don't really hide as to who they are. In, in terms of what our batteries do, they do one of uh, two or three things. Uh, at one any moment in time, they could be providing something called frequency response, um, which is where we're dealing with uh, the 
what we what I tend to call the ripples on the surface of the market, essentially smaller imbalances that um, aren't dealt with via contract, essentially by the purchase or sale of electricity. There's an availability of batteries that creates that sort of smoothing of the system by importing and exporting in response to small demand supply demand imbalances. Uh, that's number one, um, and we're paid a, an availability fee for that, and, and that's procured by National Grid. The key alternative is to trade. In trading, you are either importing or exporting power. You have your grid connection, you can do that freely, but you can choose to do it in one of two or three ways, two key ways. One is through the wholesale market, where you could either trade in advance or trade in the very short term, effectively importing or exporting power almost at no notice. Um, so you can trade ahead later in the day or into the next day. That's about as far as you go, by the way, in this market. Or you could, in the same context, offer your battery up to National Grid to trade it to make sure that the electricity system is balanced. So one of the key features of this market, and many of the listeners will probably know, is that you know electricity is a peculiar commodity. You actually have to balance supply demand in real time. You don't have to do that with oranges or gold or water or anything else. You can you can store those things and or just put them on a shelf. Electricity, once it flows, needs to be perfectly balanced or devices trip or break or cause um, safety issues. So um, you absolutely have to do that. And that's why keeping the lights on is number one of National Grid's priorities, um, not number two or three, um, numbers two or three being cost effectiveness and so on. I should stress, though, that it's not National Grid's job anymore. It's um, the entity that does used to do that within National Grid was called the ESO, Electricity System Operator. That's now actually called the FSO and is a nationalized entity. And the FSO stands for Future Systems Operator. Same company. It's just been spun out of National Grid into the, and owned by government. And they, they make sure that they contract the necessary generating capacity to balance the supply and demand on the system. And, uh, and they do that just simply by buying power or asking people to not sell their power and effectively buy back their positions. Typically, they do that to curtail renewable generation as required um, and, and balance the system that way as best they can, of course, because people can switch their lights on and turn their ovens on and do as, what, as they wish, which obviously creates variations in supply and demand. And that's how, what's dealt with in, in frequency response. So you've got the balancing mechanism, which is the process that, that um, the FSO goes through to balance the market. You've got the wholesale market, which where where the batteries respond to commercial signals, and you've got frequency response, which is sort of dealing with with the small imbalances in the market. By definition, the traded market is the biggest market because that's where you're dealing with significant potential imbalances caused by the intermittency of renewables. Um, I believe we talked about that in our last podcast. So um, that's what we expect to be doing with our batteries over the longer term. While frequency response, we think, is is, is quite a shallow market. Um, National Grid only procures in the region of the capacity of what's installed in terms of batteries today, so about one and a half to two gigawatts of, of frequency response, while the size of the battery market will grow to you know, 20, 30, and maybe even 40 or 50 gigawatts in due course as a function of the imbalances that only grow as you get and, and rely more and more on renewables. That scale of, of what's coming up is, is a great place to leave it for a quick break, and we'll be right back to talk more about that. To uncover the full story behind the numbers, you need analytics. But more than that, you want people who will harness their experience, intelligence and insight to interpret the raw data. BDO's UK Renewables practice works with investors and developers across a wide range of renewable technologies and from large corporates and funds to small community energy projects. The passion of our people and the breadth of our expertise enables us to understand the challenges faced by our renewables clients. 
We are partner-led, pragmatic and flexible in our approach, which is essential in such a dynamic and evolving sector. Our model audit team is ranked number one by both transaction volume and value on IJ Global, and we are proud of our track record in supporting many of the UK's listed renewables infrastructure funds, both with their fundraisings and their increasingly global M&A activity. Find out how we can help your company to succeed at bdo.co.uk and realise your business potential. BDO. More than a numbers machine. My, they sound excellent. Um, that brings me to um, a point just to pick up on on some of your previous comments, uh, Ben. Sure. I noticed in my inbox not too long ago, you and a number of leading players in, in your world wrote an open letter to the EU about the benefits of, and it, well, the benefits and the importance of um, battery storage. You referenced um, some of the some of the challenges that you have there, and one of them was a lack of flexible grid connectivity. Now, does does that mean that you're you're finding just a lack of space to put batteries on the grid? Or is it that you're finding the way in which you contract to have those connections is, is commercially challenging? What what's the what's the nature of the of the challenge? Great question, David. And thanks for referring to that letter, which was initially authored by by Fluence and, and did a great job of of bringing some points together for broad communication. And this is a point that doesn't all just relate to batteries. It does relate to renewables in general and the ability to just connect new projects in this particular point. Ability to to source grid capacity in different markets. If you think of a of a connection and uh, you think about lots of different demand coming off a point of supply, so you know a great uh, node on the network, if you like, um, that demand comes off that flows into a town or a few towns. Um, and then going into that point of connection, you might also have some renewable generation. Otherwise, you'd have uh, a big link to a power station in the distance as well. When you want to add something to that point of connection, grid companies often think about, okay, well, what other supply is flowing into that point? And they'll think of batteries as another source of supply because they sort of have to up to a point. And that's unfortunate when there's other renewable generation going to a point because the reality is that the battery is likely but not necessarily going to be doing the opposite of what the renewable generation is doing if there's too much of the generation then what the battery could well be doing is actually taking it off um, exactly when when the excess generation is happening and batteries aren't off, often aren't looked at in this varies by country and jurisdiction in that way and so it limits the amount of capacity that could go onto the network with limited amounts of reinforcement. Um, and there are, there are lots of ways of limiting the flow of electricity from a system that might be acceptable to a battery, for example. And so presenting a connection offer and limiting its potential operation in a way that actually won't result in losing much or if any money um, because it's unlikely to operate in the way that, that would cause a constraint of, of the use of the battery would be very helpful because it would allow more projects to come on. So that's one of the, the challenges, grid capacity in general. Then more broadly, uh, you mentioned contracting, the alignment between a generator and the network operator is not ideal. Um, the simple, re and that's true everywhere. If you want to connect to a network, Obviously, there's there's an obligation. There's a set of regulatory processes that oblige grid companies to allow this to happen as long as they're compliant projects from a safety and design perspective. But the timeframes are very, very contractually loose. 
they can slip, they can move, and there's very little, if any, liability to um, either a national grid or a local grid company. And that's that's a huge source of frustration. Um, that's that's a regulatory and contractual point. There's a further point, and I've seen this in the UK very significantly, is, is also a real issue. And whatever the causes are, whether it's linked to COVID or Brexit or something else, but there's a real talent issue. There's a shortage of resource, and I find a shortage of motivation. You know, that, that it, it feels like, and, and I'm saying this really because I do want to send the message out there, although I say it cautiously because I don't want to alienate either anyone either. But frankly, there's a lack of motivation. There's a lack of incentivization of people who work and get allocated to work on specific projects. You know, and some do a great job mainly because they're passionate about what they do, but others just don't. And they don't have either the financial incentive or all the motivation um, to, um, to, to um, do the very best that they could. And, and sometimes it's a lack of talent, sometimes it's a lack of motivation. And, I, and you can't be sure which it is in every case. But um, yeah, there are challenges and uh, it's, a, it's a challenging industry to operate in as a result. Do you think that the, uh, the recent UK uh, consultation, that was at the Review of Electricity Market Arrangements, if my acronym serves me well, That's right. That's uh, will right. make much of a difference to that? And, and is it kind of positioning the UK as a little bit more forward-looking in, in regards to some of the, the questions or the, the challenges that you mentioned in your letter? Um, I do think the UK is forward-looking in general in this area. I would say that absolutely. I don't think it will address the points I've raised, but I do think that they, some of the changes that are going to come through this are essential, if not very practical. But in terms of the changes that may happen, subject to minded two decisions by Ofgem, and actually it's being led by Bayes now as well. Um, and a lot of these reforms were originally thought of by National Grid. So the, I've just mentioned the sort of trinity, if you like, of, of companies involved in this area. So we've got Bayes, the regulator Ofgem, and then National Grid, the, the, the um, operator of the network, historically. Now, you've got the wish to change how the market operates from having one power price in every half hour for the whole country to a power price for a number of different nodes, uh, essentially the points the points of electricity flow. In fact, it may be as many as 2,000 nodes. So it means that almost every point of connection either has one or two power prices associated with it. And that will effectively help make the pricing of electricity as a function of its distance from the point of where it's needed more efficient. So if you're miles and miles away from, from consumption, then it, you, it may be that you are disadvantaged versus something that's closer, depending on your marginal cost as well. So it's a function of distance stroke grid need, system need, network need, all interchangeable points, and 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 your cost of generation. This this already happens in, in in various parts of the world, in particular America, as a sort of a example. And it can mean that well-positioned assets do very well. But there's always a concern that it creates stranded assets. So I think certain renewable generators will will express quite a degree of nervousness around this change, simply because there's a degree of uncertainty. I keep hearing this word um, signaling in lots of documents, which I think is kind of touching on what you were saying there about would, would this nodal pricing effectively enhance signaling? Because it's telling local markets more information about what real true pricing at that point is or am i confusing two things here <laughs> I, I think it is correct to use the word signaling you, you get um you get information about a, a node based on its pricing and so on and yes you could use that expression is a short answer 
we've we've been looking at the UK so far, but obviously things are happening globally as well. And I know Gresham is increasingly looking outward from the UK. Could you maybe tell us about the kind of short, medium, long-term plans you have for for more global deployment of battery storage? Absolutely. And Andrew, you're absolutely right. This is happening globally. So just to spend a second on that, you know, what we see is very similar things happening in, in, in most markets. We are seeing the deployment of renewables, the level of renewables already reaching a good level. The UK reached 45% in Q1 of this year. Um, most markets aren't quite at that level yet, but um, it's it's um, moving forwards pretty quickly. And there's even more of an imperative due to, for energy security reasons most recently. Electricity consumption is going to grow as petrol and gas consumption shrink for the purposes of transportation and heating, respectively. And that means the importance of electricity grows and within that, renewables are going to gain more and more share. So the electricity market is going to become broadly the energy market, you know, with you know certain segments excluded, but become dominant. And within that, renewables and solar and wind being the biggest elements of, of where the growth is coming from. So dramatic changes coming over the next 20, 30 years. And you, we, we have to bear in mind that the UK is just about, by our calculations, about a percent and a quarter of the global electricity market. So there's an awful lot going on outside Great Britain, actually, to be specific, not just UK, Great Britain. And so there's an opportunity if we can export or carry over our business model to other places to exploit that growth. And, And I think we can. I think there are lots of wholesale market structures around the world and similar setups that allows us to take advantage of that. And in that vein, we have got permission from our investors to invest not just in GB and Ireland, as we have had historically, but in GB plus up to 30% elsewhere, with elsewhere being legally defined in our documents as overseas jurisdictions, and it covers US, Canada, the European economic area, which includes Ireland and, and Australia. And we're very excited about what that's going to bring in terms of opportunity for the fund. Absolutely. Presumably the different um, uh, revenue types, the, the, the projects in different countries generate are kind of similar in nature. Yes. But perhaps they're called different things, maybe operate in different ways. Is that is that right? Or are they doing very different things? In no, it, it, absolutely right. If you think of any market, every single electricity market that I know anyway is AC. AC frequency can drift. So you need frequency response or control, the different words. There's potential for supply demand imbalances in real time, in short term, say 15 minutes, uh, uh, over an hour, uh, over days, over long-term planning. And so that means that you need not just frequency control, but reserve, you need balancing systems, and you need capacity markets and or commercial markets that drive additional capacity um, through through commercial signals, which is more the sort of those countries that don't have capacity mechanisms to uh, incentivize new capacity build uh, will do so through just the commercials in the day-to-day market. So yeah, absolutely. Very sim- similar, very similar technologies by the same manufacturers being installed all over the world, whether that's a gas turbine, a solar panel, or a wind farm, or wind turbine. You know, same manufacturers all over the world. They all export globally. And same goes for the batteries. The batteries that we'll buy to install abroad will be the same as broadly the same as the ones we install in the UK. The main differences are, as you say, regulatory, and of course, in terms of how the intermittency shows up um, in countries with different, very different weather patterns, um, you'll have a, a very different um, mindset in terms of how you go about that. Yep. So we have 
tens of gigs planned for the UK, of which Gresham will hopefully be responsible for a hefty <laughs> proportion. We've kind of hundreds of, of gigs looking globally. Mm -hmm. David, are you seeing an interest from investors and kind of the M&A space picking up on that? And, and is there a lot of appetite from, from what you see? Absolutely. I think so. Investors do really seem to like it in the UK. Um, so we've now got at least three listed funds that are totally devoted to utility-scale battery storage. There are a number of private funds uh, that I guess are less visible to to, to you and I. Um, and there are corporates, you know, people like Zenobi, who, who've been doing sort of large batteries projects for, for a number of years. And they, they continue to be successful. Um, so Gore Street, for example, raised 150 million three or four months ago. Um, and and for a lot of other participants in the London markets, you know, now's not a great time. And the last six months have been been difficult. But the renewables funds and and in particular, you know, the, the storage funds have, have, have seem to have done um, you know reasonably well in terms of fundraising. I think if we talked in the last episode about this being a very short term, you know, so four or five years ago, these these funds, these professional investors or routes to investment were, were born. And I think it took some brave investors to start down that road. And I think now investors are becoming more educated. And we, as we've seen from this episode and, and the previous episode, there are some complex issues here. The energy markets are not simple to understand. And there are lots of different layers to running a battery project that don't exist within more simple sort of solar farms, for example. Um, so I think investors have taken some time to start to get to understand that. And I think they're doing a, you know, they're doing a, a better job at that now. Um, people like Ben and others that are out there in the market um, telling their story and 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 it's they tell the story very well and it's getting through and, and people are starting to understand the risks they're um, taking on with, with investing in this kind of asset. So, I, so yeah, but I definitely think there's investor appetite. Main reason is because I think despite the complexity, you, you know, we all know that storage is required to deal with the intermittency problem of renewables. So as renewables penetration uh, increases, you need storage, okay? It's almost a given. So the, the only question you then need to ask yourself is, do you believe that renewables penetration is going to increase? And I think most investors would probably say yes. I certainly feel that that's going to happen. So if you put those two together, it feels like a, a quite a simple um, investment decision, doesn't it? You know, we're going to need a lot more of this um, kind of technology on, on the system globally. So yeah, investors are interested. And I think personally, there are going to be lots more listed and private funds that will channel money into this this sector. Absolutely. And Ben, as, as one of the first, I suppose, have you seen that appetite change over the, the course of your tenure with, with Gresham? <laughs> yes, enormously. Um, <laughs> you're absolutely right, David. Gore Street raised um, 150 million, I think, in April. And we, we also raised 150, it's a pure coincidence, um, in late May. And and the demand was strong. And I know it was strong for Gore Street's product as well, the raise as well. The demand has increased very significantly. Once you establish a track record, uh, you have the trust of the market. But also broadly, once the need is understood, to David's point, generally investors want to have some exposure um, as well. So we took <laughs> well over 100 meetings uh, to get our IPO away back in uh, 2018, and and that was over a handful of months, and it's just takes it's taken days, you know, um, to, to to raise more recent amounts. So it just means that you know once you're established, um, you know, the demand is, is is much greater. But you know it's not, yeah, it's now it's, it's now increasingly being seen as an investable asset class, if not um, is investable and or, but 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 is not necessarily 
quite as low risk as renewables might be perceived um, is probably the way I'd summarize it. And therefore, the expected return that investors are looking for from energy storage would be greater. And one of the reasons for that is the fact that uh, it's typically described as a merchant business model. And what that means is essentially you don't, well, we certainly don't, and you can if you want, but you can't do it for very, very long term. But we don't seek to lock in our revenues from counterparties in the particular space here is, is as a floor level. Um, we don't do that because we don't think that floor pays us well enough. Um, so you're then paying away a lot of upside to to those who would offer you that floor. But that means that we then have a not fully certain revenue line, um, which you know naturally for infrastructure investors, that's that's not what they're looking for. And so what we seek to communicate is that, yeah, while there will be volatility in our revenues as a function of uh, volatility in the volatility, and let's call it variability in the volatility over time that then drives our revenues, but we do do know that that volatility is fundamental in the market. You knew, you know that it's caused by how the market operates, the wholesale market structure that I mentioned. That's that's crucial. The fact that you've got cheap power from renewables and expensive power from flexibility providers and everything in between, and the intermittency is what unlocks um, the extremes. To pick up on Ben's point there, David, is there a misunderstanding then in some of these institutional investors as to how this business model differs is there a little bit more diligence needed on on you know the side of investors to kind of understand what they're getting themselves into yes i think so and and, and i think you know if you if you want to see how some of that's articulated then you know the prospectuses of um of these funds is a good place to start um you know they tell the story there as clearly as is as is kind of possible and as ben mentioned you know there's a lot of effort goes into Talking to numerous investors to to reinforce these this complexity. So no, I think I think they're I think from their perspective, diligence is kind of um, you know they're, they're understanding um, what they're getting into. I'd like to think so. I think the the diligence challenge is actually inter- interesting. You mentioned that they 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 tend to rise on the sort of transactional level where funds like Gresham and others um, are, are acquiring new projects. The trends have changed somewhat over. The years in terms of the stage at which investors are investing in specific SPVs. So there was a time, and it still will happen from time to time, but there, it was more common a few years ago that people would buy existing operational projects. And there, the diligence challenges were quite quite numerous, really. Information inconsistency um, is one uh, that we've certainly found on projects. So um, Ben mentioned the, uh, I think he called them asset... Uh, asset optimizers. Asset yeah. optimizers, that's it. Thanks, Ben. They essentially are the party that provides the revenue directly to the SPV, essentially. And we found in our experience, if you had a lot of assets with a lot of different counterparties, you, you might find different levels and quality of information coming about the performance of your battery and the revenues it was generating. And that makes diligence the art of understanding the past, you know, to, to sort of predict the future. That makes it more difficult. I think the more generally, actually, diligence is harder with these types of project because as I mentioned before, the, the the nature of them is they're complicated. And not only that, there, there, there are multiple revenue streams. There have been changes in the way those revenue streams and the markets that generate those revenues have, um, have changed over the years. So all of these things give rise to sort of lumps and bumps in the history of these businesses. So that makes again makes diligence a bit more challenging. I think also when you start to look forward, predicting the revenues 
for these assets is is quite challenging. Different investors or different people have different strategies about how to use a battery. Number one, there are market professionals who whose job it is to effectively give views on what prices in these um, markets might look like in future. But I think their job must be quite hard because they have to try and predict various things, uh, you know, renewables penetration, the, the, the likely increase in, in battery storage, all of these factors, among others. This is quite a difficult job, I would say. I'm, I'm not close to how they do it, but um, it's, it's, it's not an easy job. So that means diligencing, i.e. getting comfort and assurance over forecast assumptions is is quite difficult with these these projects so there are lots of reasons why diligence is more challenging by comparison to a um, as we said before a, a, a typical solar farm or wind farm where there are i guess fewer moving parts really fewer interventions fewer layers of information um so they're simpler to understand compared to battery storage so yeah lots of lots of interesting things but of course that's that's what makes them so fascinating you know they're, they're amazing businesses to look at and try and understand, um, which is you know, the, the the job I'm I'm in. So Ben, I I know we're we're, we're somewhat over our megawatt hour, I think now. But um, just one thing that struck me um, is, it, am I right in thinking that essentially you guys have all built this industry, this battery storage industry, without the benefit of subsidies? That that for example, you know, the solar industry and the wind industry in the UK are phenomenal and super strong. But they did have some help along the way with feeding tariffs, rocks, et cetera. Is it, am I right in thinking that other than the capacity market, we haven't really had those benefits? That's absolutely right, David. We, we haven't had subsidies um, at all. Uh, um, but there have been certain key changes to the regulatory backdrop and the elimination of various um, sources of friction in our business model cost and effect that have been eliminated. And it's worth mentioning this because it sort of is a second, one of but, but the second overall key point around the need to set up markets well from a regulatory perspective to be able to um, unlock the potential for batteries. So you don't so much incentivize them as exempt them from certain things that that they they may be charged. So you know typically the cost of a system, whether that is the subsidy regimes themselves, carbon pricing, the cost of the grid, the cost of balancing the grid and the trades associated with that, they can be charged to the consumer or the generator, but it's got to be charged to someone. And exempting batteries, which are effectively providing flexibility between the two from those sorts of charges, not completely, but for the most part, is what's happened in the UK that's really unlocked the business model for batteries. Otherwise, as well as a cycle loss in terms of lost energy that you get from just the heat loss in a battery, which is very little in a lithium-ion battery, hence its benefits. And we've covered that already. But also then you have a commercial loss because you've sort of got these frictional costs. You're having to contribute to carbon pricing and everything else, green levies and otherwise. That then makes the spread that you need all the, um, to, to generate a profit or the price that you need in a frequency response contract to break even that much higher, eliminating and making un- un- unlocking the way for batteries in GB has has really really helped, and we need to see that happen everywhere. That and putting back basically putting batteries on a level playing field with with any alternative source of flexibility. That's a crucial point. Level playing field. That is a great point to leave this episode today, and also trail some of the uh, items we'll be talking about in future episodes, especially about building out the grid and how we incorporate more energy storage in general. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
So that's the end of the second installment of the Megawatt Hour. Thank you once again to my co-host David Bevan, to Gresham's Ben Guest, and to producer Chris. Thanks also to you for listening. You can let us know your thoughts through our social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. And every week, the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. If you've not already, please do subscribe free to Energy Voice Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And listen out for more episodes of the Megawatt Hour coming your way very soon. I'm Andrew Dykes, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.